Some have said that we're living in a golden age of conspiracy, though I don't know if gold is exactly the color that I would choose. Nonetheless, there sure seem to be an awful lot of them around in the media these days. Is this because there are more conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories? Is it simply because social media has connected so many people that normally you wouldn't have access to that it seems like there are a lot of people? Are conspiracy theories being weaponized in order to uh, separate us and drive us into some sort of chaotic state so that uh, certain players can gain power and influence? These are all questions we ask. The real question, though, for most of us on the ground is, how does it all work? Why do people believe certain conspiracy theories, especially to the point where they're ready to kind of fight about it? sometimes even commit acts of violence in defense of the conspiracy theory that has kind of taken over their mind. A lot of that has to do with cognitive distortions and cognitive biases and the way that our brain kind of works. To talk with me about that today, I'm talking to Kent Weishouse. He is a licensed clinical social worker who has a private practice up in Sonoma County in Northern California, where I grew up. Uh, he is also an adjunct professor at Cal State L.A., He's also written a book called Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelm and Crack Up, about how to keep your brain in good order. And uh, before all this, he worked for 25 years in television, uh, working as a producer, as a director, and a bunch of other things. So uh, in short, he's seen a lot of different ways to process information. Uh, so thank you for talking to me today, Mr. Weishaus. Thank you. It's uh Really an honor to be on the uh, Conspiracy Clearinghouse podcast, Eric. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> an honor. Well, well. An honor. <laughs> I, I know nobody can see this, but uh, I am blushing. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to thank Mr. Weishaus for speaking to me. And of course, everybody out there for listening to this episode of the podcast. I remind you that you can subscribe, he says again, to the podcast and if you like what we do you can donate via our buy me a coffee page and we'd appreciate it if you would review us especially on imdb which seems appropriate considering mr weishouse's 25 year career in television you leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in The Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So, Mr. Weishaus, a uh, bit of background information first off. So, you worked in TV for ages and ages and ages. That's right. 
I actually came out of Sonoma State uh, in the late 70s in having graduated with the very useful theater arts degree and uh, navigated uh, within a year or two into television production, started working for uh, Dick Clark for a few years, hired me and uh, went on to different other shows. Alan Thicke's first show, Thick of the Night, was a talk show. Uh, Solid Gold, back in the great old days. Of- oh, yeah. That's my childhood, man. There you go. Well, I was on Solid Gold for several years, uh, did a number of Disney specials. Um, then I became associate producer of the Arsenio Hall Show, which was quite a splash in uh, the late the late 80s, early 90s, the first African-American talk show host in late night so um that was that was a re- very fun experience by and large and then after that things went just went downhill <laughs> <laughs> right well i don't know i'm looking at your bio and you worked on hard copy you did some post-production work on uh, a documentary about richard simmons you worked as a as an adm post on Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, which, of course, was a huge, huge book. You worked on the Wolfgang Puck Show. You worked for Dr. Phil. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is it all downhill, really? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm exaggerating. Just I tended to gravitate towards tabloid television with different forays into more worthwhile stuff like Wolfgang Puck. I really enjoyed working with Wolfgang. He was fun. But uh, yeah, you know, hard copy entertainment tonight, e-entertainment, arguably uh, putting out stories that just make people want what they can't have, think that certain things are important that are not they're just part of the smoke and mirrors of what's really important is over here but no look at over here so we can tell you about what's going on with the kardashians that kind of bs you know right it's it's the old uh the old adage about uh, give the bread and circuses you know exactly except now it's uh give them uh dollar 99 combo meals and dr phil <laughs> right, right. And and by the way, that is why Dr. Phil and E Entertainment are on the air to advertise dollar ninety-nine combo meals. <laughs> Get people to buy more of them. Right. Yes. That's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. I'm I'm sure that there's a university uh course out there somewhere about analyzing the adverts during certain types of television programming. One of my bosses once yelled at me, don't you get it? This show is wraparound for commercials. Right. Well, and that's how TV started. Let's be honest. I mean, they were called soap operas because uh, soap and detergent manufacturers are the ones who paid for it provided that you know the stars read a little blurb when it was live uh, and they used to do the same thing for radio uh, about the products with a few exceptions obviously i'm thinking of twilight zone and hill street blues and i think you might argue star trek and and a few others throughout the years have been pretty worthwhile all in the family but then you know since really gary shanley show and then hbo coming out with the sopranos and since then we've we've seen finally People in Hollywood and the industry are going, oh, actually, this is a pretty interesting entertainment format, and we can tell really interesting stories that we can't tell in a cinema because no one's going to sit down for a 10-hour movie. They're just not. Right, right. One of my favorite ones, Deadwood. Yeah, Deadwood is another one of these prestige TV things, you know. You worked in this field for a very, very long time. You obviously encountered hundreds, 
dare I say, thousands of different people, many of them in some way, shape, or form, and I don't mean this in a nefarious sense, but trying to manipulate people's minds and what they want. And yes, part of it's through advertising, but the art of storytelling, whether it's on screen or stage, is sort of uh, manipulating the emotions, manipulating the mind. Yeah, It's so funny with live theater. I'm not sure why we're so much more forgiving because we're there in the live room with live stuff that's going on and being staged for us. Like, you know, a holdover from Greek tragedies or something where people were profoundly moved by what they saw on, on the stage or in forums in front of them. And I don't know, personally... When a live theater piece moves me, uh, I'm much more drawn in and interested. Now, it doesn't mean that their television and films can't accomplish the same thing. And it's certainly going down the same road. But um, it seems like they're different animals because one is canned and can be done over and over and over. And one is just a spectacular performance in the moment, you know. And, you know, you were talking about the the beginnings of how radio and TV were sponsor-driven in my subjective observation, in a much more uh, softer way, you know, if you had Burns and Allen promoting Carnation instant milk, you know, um, and it was it was usually charming and they're sharing recipes as opposed to um, some hard hitting thing of a car accident or a stabbing being played over and over and over to get to get your eyeballs onto the screen. And now cut to, hey, bye, you know, so-and-so. <laughs> what used to be sort of kid gloves stuff is now very hard edged, uh, at least in, in the tabloid world and, and arguably in the rest of the television world as well. Uh, how do we get, again, eyeballs on the set? So that when we cut away to our sponsors' products, people are pulled in. I suspect all of this experience informed very much sort of the next phase of your career, which is you decided, I'm going to drop all this and I'm going to get into sort of mental wellness and mental health. Exactly. A lot of what I was doing, not everything, but a lot of what I was doing could arguably be called antisocial. It was promoting unrealistic desires. It was taking your attention away from real meaningful things to smoke and mirrors. Look over here. And I think it actually makes, in some cases, people can get ill, physically or mentally ill by watching this stuff over and over and over and over seeing this is part of the realm of cognitive distortions if you see so and so celebrity over and over and over having some awful thing done to them or winning some great prize if you see some guy on the street in a car accident over and over and over we get into the realm of daniel kahneman and his availability heuristic so these things are instantly available on our phones, our computers, our TVs. With little or no resistance, you can watch this a hundred times. And when you see something a hundred times, the brain reacts as though it's always there. It always has been and it always will be. And it distorts our view of reality. So it's, it's important to pay attention 
to how we're being manipulated, I think, by media. Um, and again, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's systemic. Uh, this is just how the system works. Yeah, I was going to say the word manipulated is a little bit loaded there because it implies intention. And I think that it's it's thoughtless, it's careless, but I, I don't think anyone's sitting around going, no, let's turn them into the perfect consumers and let's take them away from things that are important. <laughs> no, I just think they're greedy and and they're like, this makes money, and then, or at least we think it does. So let's do this over and over again because capitalism doesn't. There's a lot of oh, it innovates, but it also once it finds something that works, it just beats that drum until the drum breaks. That's right. And so, I, yeah, I, I want to stress, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think it's just how the system works, and and it works so well that we get caught into these systems that keep drawing us into using things that are unhealthy and we're blinded to them it's they're available to us that we can just keep doing it over and over and over and there's nothing wrong with this whereas in fact there might be something uh, worming its way into your psyche or worse yet working worming your way its way into your physicality uh, with something you might be eating or consuming that, that we're told is benign, but is in fact uh, got elements of something which is poisonous in it, you know, ultimately over the over time. Sure. I mean, let's face it, too. And we all know, I mean, as uh, as uh, Michael Pollan has said in uh, one of his books uh, about food and the way that we eat, eat food, by which he means food, not something that ha that your grandmother wouldn't recognize as food that has it's completely synthetic, uh, not too much, uh, mainly plants. That's it. That's all you really need. And yet, yeah, I'm, I admit it. I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up plopped in front of that television because I had a single mom. She's busy. She's working. You know, we were latchkey kids. We kind of sometimes didn't see our mother for, you know, a day or two days because that was just our generation. And, uh, and she was busy. And so the TV was kind of our, our buddy and our friend. And through that, I got a love of, old movies because there, there were channels you know you're from the bay area so was i ktvu before it went to fox was you know chiller driller matinee on saturdays and then channel 44 had son of and then creature features was on at 11 30 at night so it was like horror movies and science fiction movies and so i i learned to like all those things but i tell you you show me a good high-res quality picture of pizza and all i can think about for the next half hour is pizza. Yeah, that's right. You show me a picture of a cinnamon roll, all I can think about is a cinnamon roll, and I smell it in the house. It's kind of astonishing uh, uh, that uh, that we're, you know, it's something I was talking about with a neurosurgeon uh, on a previous episode about sort of neuroplasticity and the, the interesting way that neural pathways work in the brain is let's say an opposite correlative to the way say a road works the more you drive over a road the faster it breaks down but in the brain the more times you use a connection the stronger that connection gets well also i would i would argue that from an evolutionary standpoint that we are wired to eat fat <laughs> if we can find it because ten thousand years ago the famine might happen tomorrow I remember one time some years ago, I went into a four and 20 house of pies with a friend and we were sitting at the counter and we both wound up ordering apple pie. And at one point I looked up and there's this 
three foot by four foot picture of an apple pie sliced right above me, just out of my field of vision. But I'm going, this was this had a subliminal effect on me. This is why I'm ordering this apple pie. (laughs) That's because I'm wired. It's like, oh, must have fat could run out tomorrow. You know, must have sugar, must have sugar. Right. You know, it's interesting, too. It's interesting that you uh, bring up uh, Daniel Kahneman because uh, he people don't know that, that don't know he is uh, sort of came up with a theory of uh, behavioral economics. And he has a thing called prospect theory, which is, I thought, quite interesting because basically we we think that we do this and we think other people assess kind of loss and gain uh, equally, but we don't. We actually do it in an asymmetric manner. He argues that loss aversion is much more of an influence on us than anyone wants to admit it. So if you already have something, you're really averse, much more strong, as opposed to just going to the store to buy a dozen eggs. You give them five, four or five bucks. If you have really what's deemed really expensive World Series tickets to let them go for face value. Now I've let something go, which was quite worthwhile to me. And it's much more painful. But he got the Nobel Prize in economics in 2001. He's a psychologist who got this prize because he and his partner, uh, Tversky, uh, studied uh, what, what you described as prospect theory, which is largely driven by loss aversion. Also, uh, the endowment effect he talks about. And so these, uh, what I call thought distortions, he calls them heuristics. A couple of decades before him, a psychiatrist named Aaron Beck uh, started detailing in the cognitive behavioral world um, thought distortions. And I think there's a really valuable confluence between Kahneman's work and Beck's. Um, And as far as, you know, the, the subject of conspiracy clearinghouse, these things are always at work in us and frequently influence how we see things. We all overgeneralize, you know, uh, all or nothing thinking overgeneralizing. We, we ha- will have a mental filter where something seems all good and or, or all terrible. We all do what's called mind reading. Uh, God, I was watching something yesterday. That's right. On TV, of course, um, where where the the, th- the plot point turned because somebody said, I know what you're thinking. (laughs) In fact, nobody knows what anybody else is thinking. We know how they behave. We see how people behave. And that may influence how we react to them. But no one can get into another person's head and say, oh, I know exactly what thoughts you're having. And yet I do think that, you know, uh, we're kind of homo nerens. We're we're man the storyteller. And that's kind of how our brains work is we're constantly telling a story about the world and about ourselves to ourselves. So when someone is telling you, Hey, you, you wouldn't believe they're all shaken up and they're pale. And they're like, they're just, you know, they just got out of their car. Maybe there's a dent in the car. You know, you can guess pretty effectively that they're about to tell you about a, a near miss accident that they had, you know? Right. Right. Well, yeah. And, and that's based on their behavior. Right. So you can, something's just happened. You can see events in the physical world. Um, and yeah, we want to immediately make sense out of it. So this person's going to tell me about a fender bender they had. Of, of course, um, I'm, I'm speaking more in terms of what motivates people at a distance, what one friend suddenly turns on another and accuses them of thinking this, you know, 
but yes, you're you're absolutely right. We're storytelling, meaning making creatures, and and that's partly why we tend to mind read. But I would I would caution whenever you notice yourself going, "Well, I know what he's thinking." I would I would strongly urge use Kahneman's slow thinking method to think about your thinking. I think I know what they're thinking. Hmm. What about this thought I'm having? <laughs> That's very Buddhist. That's actually a Buddhist a Buddhist meditative technique. <laughs> well, it is. It can be valuable to slow down your thinking. It's a Kahneman's book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, I am a big proponent of slowing down thinking. And and whether it's uh, Beck's uh, cognitive distortions or Kahneman's uh, heuristic distortions, the best way to take a look at your stance within all the systems within your within which you're embedded is to slow down your thinking and think about these systems. Another uh, distortion, which we all do, is I know exactly how this is going to end. I'm going to predict the future, and I know it's going to come out this way. And frequently, there's a lot of evidence pointing to this. There's been historical stuff that's pointed to it. But no one knows how the future is going to come out. Absolutely. Things change. The, the universe is chaotic. One of my favorite lines from the show Dead, what I mentioned earlier, is uh, uh, announcing your plans is a great way to make God laugh. <laughs> yeah well yes that's yeah that's always that's always the case but you know it's interesting that you say that i i think that's that's one of the things they're starting to get some studies that um i i didn't i don't dislike uh when i look at them that are suggesting that one of the appeals of the conspiracy mindset is this sense of certainty which then in turn gives you maybe perhaps a sense of control for some people, it's an ego boost and whatever. But especially when you are already embedded in uh, a narrative structure. So, for example, uh, I've been doing research on an upcoming episode uh, called Apocalypse When Already, talking about all the uh, thousands of years of the world's going to end any day now. And, you know, I'm kind of like like all these people on Facebook and Twitter recently because, you know, there's a war in the Middle East and da, da, da. And this is it. And the rapture's coming. And 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 you you don't want to get left behind. I'm like, I do want to get left behind. I want you to get raptured and leave me the hell alone. <laughs> Please get raptured. But they're, you know, they're not going to get raptured. We all know they're not going to get raptured. But they see it. They see the end of the narrative that they're embedded within is this. And it's it's a coming. And they're so sure. You know, and sometimes they're so sure that I'm thinking of Heaven's Gate, they kill themselves. Sure, that's right. I'm so sure this is going to happen. I'm just going to jump over the cliff now. And from a cognitive standpoint, just as we're storytelling, meaning-making creatures, we crave structure. If chaos is raining down around us, we can predict the future in a structural way. This is absolutely going to happen. And Somehow I'm I'm a little bit relieved now. The terror I'm facing at this deadly chaos around me in my world is suddenly just brought down a notch because I know what's going to happen. And I I would urge again people to just think about their thinking. Why am I drawn to a certain outcome that I know is going to happen? Very likely might happen, statistically might be very likely. 
But statistics are not certainties, they're likelihoods. And the universe is chaotic. Structure can break into chaos at any time. <laughs> so I think when you get that, that feeling of certainty, like you say, it's almost like, whoosh, you know, like I think some people would be subconsciously relieved by the lizard aliens land and start taking over the earth and they vastly uh, outnumber us and they're vastly superior to us and we're all going to be food and that's just how that is that is a terrible terrible future and yet it's almost like for many humans knowing the certainty of that horrible future is less stressful than the stress of the unknown that's right. It's oddly comforting to know, well, this is how the next hundred years are going to play out. And, and this has to do, there's a guy out there now named Richard Schwartz who has developed something called internal family systems theory, which is based to some degree on older theories, uh, uh, di voice dialogue and gestalt theory, that we are actually fragmented beings. We have sub-personalities within us that are integrate together to give us the face of talking as a unitary consciousness. But it, you don't have to look very far to see how you're fragmented. Uh, I want to go out to the store right now and go shopping. No, 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 I want to go take a nap. So two different parts of me are talking to me, right? Which one's going to win out, the nap or the store? Um, and that's a very oversimplified thing. But what happens is when when people do experience what what seems to be life threatening and we have a preponderance of this because of social media and modern you know media in the last 50 to 70 years we're easily exposed to what appear to be life threatening things and 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 currently we're really exposed because we can watch them over and over and over. They're promoted to us to sell more of the sponsor's product. And, and when it feels like danger is just, just that, just around the corner, our internal parts tend to fragment a bit more, tend to be. So one will take a position of, uh, I know exactly what's going to happen. I can predict what's going to happen. While another one may say, may get drowned out, may get just pushed away. Oh, no, I don't really know what's going to happen. I'm not too sure about this. And so I think this is partly, it's partly the result of social media and media in general, that we have so much polarization. Um, but something, like a part of me says, wait a minute, that's not the whole story. And I'm not quite sure what the missing link is. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called E-Prime. Uh, E-Prime is simply the English language without any instance of the defining to be. So you don't say Bob is stupid, for example. And so you have to say something else. He's behaving in a way that makes me think he's stupid, something like that. Or this food is delicious. Well, uh, this food very much appeals to my personal taste. And it, it's a very interesting exercise to try and use this because you find yourself, it seems like the is and the am and the are and the was and the were is shorter and thus more efficient. And yet, by not using that form of to be, you get much more accurate descriptions. And and yeah, you encapsulate the nuance. People have arguments, especially in the conspiracy world. You know, right now what's happening with the UAP people. The UAPs are aliens in spaceships, 
or the aliens are interdimensional soul-sucking creatures or are from underneath the earth or the mention or the aliens are us in the future and they fight with one another whereas if they simply didn't use that defining to be they might find that they don't fight as much well what you're bringing up is incredibly valuable this dovetails with several different things first of all there is a story the the verb to be is, are, am, you know, will be, tells a story. It tells a concrete story. Um, I, I liken it to when I work with clients who have diagnoses, okay? He is schizophrenic. He is depressed. Uh, he's anxious. He's got general anxiety disorder. So the idea of is, and I talk about this in my book, uh, which I guess I should plug right now, kentw.net, Stop Breaking Down the Secret to Avoiding Overwhelming Crack Up. I talk about it in, in my book, saying that you are a diagnosis does not allow that you can be anything else. I am depressed. I am depressed means I'm always depressed. I'm never going to not be depressed, right? As opposed to you know, I'm feeling some symptoms of, of depression right now. And it might be, and oh my God, again, this has got to be the 4,738th time that I felt this in the last three years. My God, when are these feelings going to go away? But that's very different than just saying, I am. And, and it's interesting that you say you have, like, I know some people who, because this is the new parlance, I have anxiety, which in itself is a linguistic attempt to take sort of blame because it was just, you're an anxious person or you're a nut or you're crazy or whatever. That just kind of pigeonholes you and defines you. Instead, if you say they have it, then it's kind of not their fault. And so therefore we can approach it like that. And yet people, it's like the word have almost is grasping in and of itself. And so then people walk around saying, I have depression, I have anxiety. And so that's kind of the end of the conversation. Whereas if, if instead you said, like you said, I'm experiencing this for the millionth time, that's a very different statement. That's right. That's right. And and I also take, you know, doctors and, and therapists to issue on it as well. I've worked in a few psychiatric hospitals and, you know, the times I've heard, oh, the schizophrenic down the hall there, you know, it's like the person's got a cluster of symptoms that they're experiencing right now. This does not mean they're always going to be schizophrenic. This does not define them. That It's like I've got a cough and a fever right now. It's, you know, uh, it, it, we tend to pigeonhole tell stories about people with the titles that we say they are. We're using the word to be. <laughs> In the U.S. especially, it seems like there's a real drive towards um, otherization, you know, and it might be simply because the country was founded on, you know, slavery. They, it could literally be that simple that we we discounted this whole group of people. And so, therefore, it's sort of baked into the structure of, of the way that we think and the way that we create social uh, and governmental systems and economic systems and all the rest. But, you know, uh, we recently watched... Uh, Band of Brothers again, uh, which is, you know, talk about prestige TV. It's excellent. And and yet I was struck again by it's it's so interesting that some a good portion of military training, because you take an 18 year olds who honestly, the brains haven't even stopped finished forming yet. That doesn't happen until you're around 25. And you're trying to 
train them to behave in certain ways and think in certain ways that are is more likely to keep them and the people around them alive. And one way to do that is to completely otherize the enemy. You know, they're dirty crowds, they're vermin, they're scum, no mercy. You're, you're, you're exterminating cockroaches. You don't have to feel bad about it. Right. And you get the same thing in the conspiracy world, because a lot of these people, especially QAnoners, they almost enter into a wartime mentality and they feel like they're soldiers on the front line. You know, we're stopping the satanic subterranean alien pedophile cannibalist cult, whatever version of it that they've adhered to. And you get this like death threats, death threats over an idea of how things are going. How does that even happen? Yeah. Well, I, again, I think, you know, if you look at our history as a species, we crave structure. It makes us feel better to have a story told structure. The world is a scary place on its own, right? And so if we can tell stories, ironclad stories that make us feel better, it is a way of avoiding deeper fear. I I, I theorize, um, you know, creating a non-human enemy out, out of some, out of someone who actually is human, you know, is a way of feeling better about the, the fear that you're, you're faced with on other fronts, on other, other areas. Um, feminism actually talks about the idea of dehumanizing the other, uh, is a way of allowing you to live with the idea of dehumanizing a slave, of dehumanizing a female, uh, of dehumanizing someone with brown skin who, you know, is a way of feeling better and making sense out of them. But in fact, we're in a multicultural uh, world now. The, the idea that the tribe next door may come and kill you for your uh, squirrel hunt is is long gone. And, and I'm hopeful we can think our way out of this because we do have the capability of slow thinking. We all do. Uh, many of us don't use it because we like to fall back on the fast thinking. Let me make instant sense out of this. But by slowing down your thinking, you can actually get many times to the bottom of how are these thoughts making a flesh and blood human into a cockroach? And is this perhaps not a good thing? But I also can't help wondering if, if sort of the speed that communication happens nowadays and the the just sheer variety of it all is maybe not contributing to quite the opposite of that because i personally i admit it i am guilty of my mind works very quickly and so i go bam i think that's that and and it feels good it makes you feel smart well we all do this is what kept us alive um fast thinking in the days when there were instant threats is what kept us alive as a species. If you just look at, at, at the history of the last few thousand years, the printing press was invented 500 years ago. Before that, ideas were shared by talking to each other or sometimes going to the theater. Since the printing press, ideas now get, get shared by you know, printed matter as people became more literate. Then along comes radio and television 100 years ago. And ideas are spread much more faster. And now here we are with social media, instantaneous idea. I think it up now, it's in China, as fast as I just said it. And so, you know, back in the days when ideas and dangers 
were simply not as nearly as prevalent. The idea of fast thinking was not so dangerous because you had to keep danger quickly away from you to stay alive. But now the world is, on, is upside down from that. And we have, we have dangers coming at us literally every second if we open the door, uh, what feels like dangers. Right. I was going to say, simply because of the speed of things, you don't have time to cognate. You don't have time to evaluate and, uh, let's face it, um, sort of index them and and judge them and, and be able to put them in their, their nice, neat box. So you end up with this big, messy room in your head. I wonder if that doesn't contribute to, even though we're not in danger, because I'm not, I'm sitting at my computer clicking around on, you know, social media. So I'm not in danger. And yet I wonder if the the speed at which things are coming maybe tricks us because we're, we're living a modern life, but we're not really modern animals. Exactly. Well, that's really well put. We're living a modern life, but we're not really modern animals. I have a section of my book called Apes with Car Keys. Um, it, it, exactly. It's that that there are pre-conscious processes that happen within us that kept us alive 10,000 years ago that that work against us now with the with the tidal wave of social media being experienced viscerally. You know, you may see scenes of war, scenes of rocket attacks in the Middle East, feeling an identification with certain peoples that twist your guts up. Your guts are twisted up because if this were if you were really there, you better be prepared to fight. But you're not. You're sitting at your desk 8000 miles away and you are not in danger. They are. No question about it. And you may feel empathy for them, but you are not. So how can you slow down your thinking and make more informed decisions without your guts telling you you're in danger, which is their job? It's interesting that you say that because it, it now occurs to me, let's say 150 years ago, oh, let's say 200, 200 years ago, you know, Joe Blow in Philadelphia would never have seen a, a dead body torn apart. For example, yes, he'd see grandma dead and and maybe, you know, people he knew dead and, and maybe the occasional accident if he's in a city. But he would never have seen some of the things that we we, we see now regularly uh, through the lens of movies and other filmed entertainment. And I can't help but wonder if that isn't maybe a little bit of what's going on with this, what seems like this acceleration of legitimate people on the ground citizens are feeling this weird sense of urgency and i wonder if it isn't because we have this old brain and it's really just a couple of hundred years max 150 years that suddenly all this stuff is coming at us and we're maybe on a sub subconscious level confusing it with reality yeah, exactly. Exactly. Certain things in our life are pressing issues and, and are important to stay alive with. And then you, you already get into abstract thinking areas where you then say, well, these issues transfer to the city level, to the national level, to the world level. And, and to some degree they do. But the urgency that our ancestors felt 10,000 years ago is nothing like this. And it's really important to remain clear-headed, clear-thinking, slow-thinking about it. The writer Gaia Vince uh, postulated that uh, someone today experiences in one day uh, the amount of uh, 
sensory input that someone in the Middle Ages experienced in their entire life. So uh, part of what I ask is, oh, okay, look, a lot of this stuff is valuable. We're not going backwards. I, I get that. But are we evolved? Are we developed mentally far enough along the road to handle this? To handle this safely, uh, we have we have great inventions that we come up with that extend our lives and give middle class status to many people. But there are dark sides to those inventions. We only go with the good stuff. You know, plastics are all good, and anything anyone who says anything is is all bad. Well, no, plastics have a dark side. How can we address the dark side? Um, while keeping what works about it. You know, I mean, we don't seem to be able to to adjust to dangers, to unintentional dangers that we create for ourselves. And social media is creating unintentional societal breakdown dangers, I, I postulate. Hmm, that is very interesting. Our brains are not sort of designed, I'll use that term, or have not developed uh, to handle this stuff because it's all so new. I'm reminded of Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s uh, novel Galapagos, where there's a refrain throughout the book constantly where, you know, the the main character misperceives something or takes action, not truly understanding what's going on. And then the narrator just says, yeah, thanks a lot, big brain. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, Vonnegut was always good at that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and, and these all all these perceptions that that we come away with, the things that we experience, they can be somewhat tied up in in the field of cognitive distortions or or thought distortions. How can we be vigilant about this in um, a really demanding, overwhelming world? Um, I mean, it's, it's it's not just social media. I mean, if you live in a city, your sensory demands are on you all the time from helicopters flying over, 100 cars zooming by at 60 miles an hour. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that's on the back of your book is, is, you know, you say, and I'll quote here. In 1900, a herd of charging buffalo would have made our great-grandparents run frantically for shelter. Yet today, daily, we're surrounded by hundreds of two-ton speeding cars. Right, exactly. So I can I can go on about the internet or about this social media. It's all these wonderful inventions that have brought us into the first couple of decades of the 21st century. No question they're wonderful, but they have a dark side. What are they doing to us? And I'm not saying we got to go backwards. I'm saying we just have to slow down our thinking and address the dark sides. So you say slow thinking, is it, I mean, is there a sort of a series of techniques or is it literally like, look, stop, take a step back and think about the fact that you're having that thought or, or more importantly, that emotion. Cause you hear this all the time on, in television shows, especially, well, I can't help how I feel. And my wife has one of the great quotes I've ever heard. She says, you might not be able to help how you feel, but you certainly have control over how you react to that feeling. That's true. There are some tools. Uh, first of all, you you could make a short list of the 
10 most prominent systems in your world that are affecting you right now. And 10 is only going to scratch the surface. But if you're cognizantly aware of them, they're probably pretty important. You could expand it to 100. If you can look around you and go, okay, so I've got systems outside me and inside me, okay? I've got an evolutionary system that's warning me of danger. I've got systems outside of me that are doing anything to make money to get my eyeballs on them. Um, and, you know, along with that, I've got systems of traffic around me and the electrical system in my house. And do I have enough money in the bank? I mean, so which of these things are affecting me? I'm experiencing something right now. What, where do I think that might be coming from? Just, po- just slow it down. Think about it. And what your wife said, you may be feeling that way, but if you slow your thinking down, you can step back and go, oh, yes, I feel this. I feel this now. How do I want to react? Right. And what's the most effective way to react? You know, like, uh, again, I think of, uh, you know, QAnoners uh, sending death threats to to people that they think are part of this, you know, satanic, cannibalistic, pedophile cult. And you're like, if you would just stop for five minutes and let's just for just for fun, let's just say everything you're thinking is true. Let's just say it's all true. Is this death threat really the best way to stop it? Because I don't think it is. I don't think it's very effective at all. You're just getting noticed by, you know, the uh, the the spiders and the bots that are supposed to be out there monitoring Internet traffic for threats like this. You didn't do yourself any favors and you're certainly not doing. I mean, we know this January 6th, right? The attack on the uh, Capitol or the insurrection or whatever you want to call it. You know, these people, it's such a weird disconnect. So they're in there. They think they're they're going in because they're using this sort of revolutionary narrative or system, as you put it, to motivate them to act in one way. On the other hand, they have another system that they're enmeshed within, which is when you do something of note, and sometimes not even then, you take pictures and video yourself and stick it online. And that's how we caught all of them, because they put it online. If I'm going to rob a bank, I'm not going to film it. Exactly. No, you know, this kind of goes down to people who do sex tapes, and somehow it gets shared in a text, right? Anything that goes in the digital world is never going away, okay? So if you're on TV, you're invading the Capitol building, that's never going away. If you're going to have sex and share it uh, on a tape with somebody who you're texting to, that's never going away. That's the digital system. That's how the digital system works. So, gee, if I'm going to have sex, should I videotape it and share it? Gee, if I want to overthrow the government, uh, am I putting myself in harm's way by sharing my picture all over the world? Right. Or or even things that are even lower stakes. I want my secretary, the new secretary, to know that I'm physically attracted to her. Is sending her a picture of my dick the best way in 2023 to communicate that? Or should I maybe take her to lunch? Right. I don't get it. Exactly. It's so weird. It's just weird. I mean, these people who share dick pics, it blows my mind. It's like, you think this is ever going to go away, don't you? <laughs> that this is never going to be identified with you. Okay. Have a good time with that. <laughs> right. And that's a system. That's just, 
that's a sort of a simplicity of the digital system that some years ago, I think most of us came to understand, uh, or maybe not everybody, I don't know, because you still see a lot of instances of stuff coming up that I never thought that was going to see the light of day, but nothing is secret in the digital world. Mm. And yet the conspiracy theorists would have you believe there are so many secrets. And yet also these incredibly powerful, rich, nefarious, ruthless monsters with their evil, horrible New World Order agenda are also complete morons. And look, they made this one stupid mistake and I caught it. Me. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, I, I just feel like you can't you can't have it both ways. They can't be all powerful and stupid at the same time, can they? I don't think so. No, I look. There are great systemic studies of how we got to where we're at. I Thomas Piketty wrote uh, some stuff about um, uh, capital and ideology. His latest book is a tremendous systemic study of how we got to where we're at and what's influencing us. Uh, using the term late stage capitalism, um, this is not a conspiracy. It's it's an out of control system that's just driving itself. You know, there's not nefarious people in charge. There's just a, it's just a system that's driving itself and. Uh, at least that's my that's my observation. So the fact is, is that we are very modern creatures operating with very old physical and mental technology. We have unintentionally created a world that feels dangerous and yet maybe isn't. This might be a contributor to what seems like an increase in conspiracy theory thinking in harsh and shrill rhetoric and in the polarization, not just in the political sphere, but actually in the social sphere as well. The fact is that our brains don't really work the way that we think they do. Society doesn't really work the way we think it does. And uh, it's all sometimes a bit overwhelming and too much. How can we, to use the title of the book written by my guest today, Kent Weishouse, stop breaking down and avoid overwhelm and crack up. And one of the tools for that is slow thinking. Stop, calm down, you move too fast, you gotta make the moment last. Yeah, that's right, I just quoted Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, I honestly find this stuff fascinating and I could talk about this stuff for hours and hours and hours, uh, but for now, we will uh, end the episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. Kent Weishouse, for speaking to me today. Of course, you can find links to his website, his book, and uh, some of the things that we talked about today in the episode notes on Podbean and elsewhere. Thank you for talking to me today, sir. Uh, super interesting. It's been my my honor, as I said before. And, uh, you know, the, the website is kentw.net. Very easy to remember. And again, there is a link in the episode notes as well. Thank you once again, everybody out there, for listening. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.